What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Just watched an absolutely miserable football game between the Patriots and the Chargers. Six to nothing, baby. We'll get into that with three-time Super Bowl champ James White in just a second. Also, I'm psyched up for the in-season tournament that we have coming up on Monday night. So Caitlin Cooper, who covers the Pacers, joined us. We previewed this matchup, got into a little bit of Tyrese Halliburton and how good he's been for this Pacers team. They're a really bizarre team in terms of how great they are offensively and how bad they are defensively. We got into, hey, who are they going to throw on Jason Tatum? Who works the best on Tyrese Halliburton? So I think you really enjoy that as we get into this in-season tournament because I'm really excited about that. But first, the thing you'll hear first is James White, three-time Super Bowl champ from our FanDuel TV show, which airs every Monday morning at 9 a.m. And then you'll hear James for a little bit longer as we get into just a really, really difficult loss for this Patriots team. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and joining us now as he does each and every week, it is three-time Super Bowl champ James White. Well, James, we always say this is rock bottom for the Patriots. This is legitimately one of the worst offensive games we've seen in NFL history. The Patriots put up zero points. The Chargers only put up six points in this game. It's like the lowest scoring football game I think my buddy Andrew Callahan tweeted out in the past five seasons. Nobody was doing anything offensively. But the Patriots, man, they had opportunities all second half to make plays. They couldn't come through. They changed the quarterback. They go from Mac to Zappi. Now, Zappi was not particularly great in this game. I guess the one thing he didn't do is turn the football over. The one turnover came when Ramondre got injured and fumbled the football. But it just, I feel bad right now for the defensive players. They completely shut down the Chargers. The Chargers didn't score a touchdown in this game, and the Patriots offense can't generate a single point in this game. Yeah, I mean, AP, he said it last week, I'm pretty sure he said if 
you know, our offense can't score, then we can't give up any points, and then maybe we'll win football games. And it's tough being a defender, you know, on a team where your offense is struggling to score. I thought Bailey, I thought he did a decent job. I don't think he played terribly. He he had some shots down the field. You know, guys couldn't come down with it. Devontae had one that was very close at the end. I thought he I thought he played his tail off. He had like a couple of drops and whatnot, but he was the one guy competing, playing with energy. Taekwon had the reverse where he was playing with a little energy with that. So that was that was good to see that guys were, you know, trying to compete. But like when push came to shove in crucial situations, still ended up being a sack or couldn't get things done on fourth or third down. And that's just that's just what it's been. You see a, a decent drive get into the red zone, decide to go forward on fourth down, sack, or just the play doesn't end up working out. And this, was, this has been the story of the offense all year long, but it's it's hard. And I said, it's, I'm sure it's tough coaching it. I'm sure it's tough playing playing in it, and it's it's just very frustrating. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say about that is I understand there were weather conditions in this game, and that certainly plays a role in this thing, but that's not an excuse to score zero points and I actually tweeted out like can we get Matt Patricia to come in at halftime try to help Bailey Zappi because Zappi was actually good with Patricia last year not so much with Bill O'Brien but just to put some context on this so the Chargers came into today to today 5.8 yards per play on defense 29th the Patriots are at 4.1 they gave up 390.6 yards per game that was last in the NFL the Patriots didn't even reach 360 or excuse me didn't even reach 260 okay So you made the worst defense in the NFL look good. Now, certainly weather plays a part of that, but a lot of that had to do with the Patriots. And you mentioned some of the missed opportunities. I go to the first drive of the second half where Zappi has that nice little pump fake. He picks up four yards, first down. You feel like you've got some momentum going. Zappi gets sacked. Trent Brown was beat. And then he gets sacked again by Mack when on when you was beat. So you go from the 32 to the 43. So you're knocked out of field goal range. Next series, Tyquan Thornton. They actually drew up a nice deep ball to Tyquan Thornton. He can't make the play on that one. Eventually, you have to punt on that drive. Now, the next series after that, the third series of the second half, Thornton on an end around, great play, 39 yards to the 35. Finally, a big play for Thornton this year. But after that, Zappi sacked when he tries to scramble. And then fourth and five, you lose nine yards. Derwin James blitzes. The Patriots don't pick it up. And then the final series, Zappi to Parker, 14 yards. Parker, the interference, I still don't know why that wasn't overturned. It did look like the defense tipped it, but nonetheless, the Patriots get that. And then Zappi has this nice throw down the field. Unfortunately, Parker is out of bounds, can't come down with that one, where Parker had a pretty good game, but that's a play you make that. You have a chance to go in. After that, Zappi's incomplete to Parker again, and then he's looking for Henry, and he's incomplete. So those are four drives in the second half where if you just make one play there, one of those plays, whether it's Thornton makes the catch, whether it's Parker makes the catch, just one, whether it's on when you or Trent Brown doesn't get beat for a sack, the Patriots have an opportunity to win, win this game. It's every drive is killed by negative plays. And this has sort of been, unfortunately, the theme of the Patriots season. It's just negative plays, miscues, Emmys, all at the wrong time. You have... Something decent going, then there's a sack. You lose 10 yards. You have something going, and whatever, incomplete pass on a potential opportunity for a big play. And when it comes down to fourth down for the game, you know, nobody's open. He's scrambling, trying to find something. Then, of course, he has to you know, force the ball up in the middle of coverage. Even on an earlier fourth down, there was there was nobody open. They showed the, the wide view. There's, there's nobody open. No, nobody for him to throw to. Like Nobody's getting any separation in one-on-one coverage, and you know, it's hard doing that at quarterback. And 
you're thinking on fourth down, at least I'm going to have one guy, you know, that I can look to, that I can trust. Okay, one-on-one coverage, I'm going to this guy. And right now there, I think Devontae was the guy today. He kept going back to him, and he was doing a decent job. I thought on the one pass down the sideline in the fourth quarter, I thought that was pass interference, even though, even though his foot was out of bounds. I thought the guy was was tugging on him the entire time while he was trying mm-hmm. to go over the ball. It's just it's tough. You can't you know, rely upon the refs and in games and that in that type of situation to help bail you out. But yeah, in typical yeah, situations, unfor- yeah, good. <laughs> I was just gonna say the unfortunate part about that is like Parker. I thought had a good game today, as you mentioned, and maybe it was interference at the end of the game. But the problem in today's game, you feel it that your six round rookie is unable to go because he was dealing with a concussion in Demario Douglas. Like you actually needed Demario Douglas in this game because. I mean, Juju was okay in this game, but Demario Douglas right now, as this team is currently constructed with Kendrick Bourne out for the season with the torn ACL, he's the number one guy. Like, that's the guy that Bailey Zappi would be looking for right now on third down, on fourth down, on critical plays. And the problem, I think, for both of these quarterbacks throughout the season, after Bourne went down, there's not that guy on the roster right now. So, look, these quarterbacks are limited. We've said that throughout the season, but... Another issue with this team, and we said it before the year, who are the weapons? And right now, they just don't have those guys on the team. Like, essentially, this year, they've got nothing out of the tight end position. I mean, I know that ball was late to Henry, but hey, you're making a lot of money. It'd be nice if you could make, like, a play for your quarterback at some point. But what have they gotten out of Gasicki, right? So, like, all these investments they've made, none of them have really panned out. And you start to think, I know we go back to Jacoby all the time, but they have no reliable playmakers outside, really— of the running back and Ramondre Stevenson, who unfortunately goes down early in this game. He had north of 40 yards in the first quarter. Maybe you win if he plays, but that's the only way you're going to win, which brings me to this, James. Like, we talk about the limitations with some of the receivers and the tight ends. We heard all week Malik Cunningham was getting reps at practice. The Patriots, clearly they had issues with the vertical passing game, which has been an issue all season long. Where was Malik Cunningham? Where was the package for Malik Cunningham? I thought we were going to, I thought for sure that we were going to see this in this game, and we don't see him at all. Yeah, I thought we would see at least a few plays, him sprinkled in there, especially when the offense can't get anything going, just, you know, mix him in there on first down, second down, a third and short, just to give the defense something else to think about, you know, his ability to throw the ball, run the ball, whatever, just line him up with a receiver just to make him think, I don't know, just put the guy out there on the football field. I thought it would happen at some point. You know, with Ramondre going down, I thought that was a huge loss. He's been the best part of the offense these last several weeks. He's, you know, back breaking those tackles, running through arm tackles, getting downhill, you know, showing the explosiveness, the 40 yards in the first quarter. If he finishes the game, he probably has over 100 yards rushing. And then, you know, maybe it was easy for Bailey Zappi today. Maybe he'll have, you know, more easy access throws across the middle on play action and things of that nature. I thought Zeke was was trying to run hard, but the it seemed like the holes were, you know, starting to close the more the game went on. And it was it was a tough battle. It's hard. It's hard to see it. Not getting, like you said, not getting, you know, much production from the tight ends. The receivers aren't creating much separation. This would have been a great game for Pop Douglas. A lot of short passes. He's that type of guy who can, you know, get the ball in space. He can make a few guys miss, create those extra yards. That's what we would always talk about. You know, when I was playing, we played in those, you know, rain weather football games. Probably going to be a lot of short passes. You guys got to catch the football and then make guys miss. It's going to be sloppy tackling, sloppy routes things of that nature, you got to take advantage of the weather, which I thought Ramondre was doing early on. Not many, I thought Taekwon did on his reverse. He, he ran through an arm tackle and created a big play. That's like, that's the type of thing you have to do in 
those type of weather situations to help your quarterback out. The skill players have to be able to create yards on their own. Yeah, and the other frustrating part about it with Ramondre is some of us on FanDuel may have had Ramondre for an anytime touchdown, along with Tyreek Hill and Derrick Henry. So <laughs> that, that certainly doesn't help when he goes down for from a selfish perspective. Or, yeah. <laughs> Early on in this game, that that was not particularly ideal. But yeah, it, it is. I think about it too, like going into the future, what we've seen in the past three games, and I would say three and a quarter, is one of the bright spots for the team. Because a lot of this season, we were talking about Ramondre he hasn't been that same guy. And we weren't saying it was him. It's just they weren't blocking it. The offense was always falling behind. So they had to throw the football. And it does look like Ramondre over the past three weeks prior to this game, he's at 5.5 yards per carry. No qualified running backs at that in the season. And I think about the future of this team. Clearly, Ramondre Stevenson, if you're drafting in the top three, which looks very likely at this particular point in time, he's the type of player that you would like to have with the young quarterback. But in terms of Zappi, he didn't do anything today that I look at. Now, not that he played excellent, but I don't think now going forward, there's any questions in terms of the quarterback. Like, I don't see this week being the secret that last week was with Belichick and company, right? Like, we're going to pencil in Zappi to be going forward as the quarterback. I don't see how you go back for Mac. Because the one thing Zappi did at least do is he protected the football. Yeah, he protected the football in tough weather situation. No fumbles, no strip sacks, anything like that. No interceptions. Yeah, you can very easily see him starting next week and seeing what he does in his next opportunity. You know, you know, getting better weather, you know, getting the another start under your belt and seeing what he can do. Like I said I thought he handled himself extremely well. Like I said, a lot of young quarterbacks and in that type of weather, we probably would have saw, you know, not even just interceptions, a lot of would be interceptions as well. Which he like he probably had like one or two that possibly could have been intercepted at some point. But I thought he made he was decisive. You know, he tried to use his legs to extend plays, which he's, you know, he's slightly more athletic than Mac is, and he used it some, which I thought was good to see, especially in this type of weather. Like if nobody's open and there's tight, you know, tight coverage, your guy might not be able to make those plays. You know, scramble, try and get, you know, two or three yards, help yourself out. You know, stay on schedule on second and third down. I thought he did a great job of that. Yeah, and one thing I have to say is, one person with this organization maybe made the best choice. And that's Devin McCourty. Because Devin McCourty, like yourself, is a three-time <laughs> Super Bowl champ. And he made the right choice to retire after this season. So I'd like to congratulate Devin McCourty on an excellent choice because he didn't have to go through this season with the Patriots. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. And we were just finishing off our FanDuel TV show, James. And I was mentioning, of course, Devin McCourty. Excellent choice. But by the way, he's doing a great job, too, in the broadcast booth for NBC. But man, he's got to feel like awesome right now. I wonder if Slater's texting him like, dude, great choice. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they have a good text thread going on right about now. And it's it's tough. I'm sure it's tough for Slate, tough for guys like David Andrews, you know, Lawrence Guy, guys who have been in the organization for a while. Just having to Jonathan Jones as well, guys who have seen a lot of success. And now in a struggling season, I said it's, it's just not as fun going into the building, you know, dealing with loss after loss after loss. It's just like everybody's on edge and nobody's necessarily, you know, happy. The coaches aren't happy. You know, everything's being evaluated at an even higher clip when you have, you know, this amount of losses. They want to see who's who they can, can rely upon going forward, who's going to be there next year, who they think can help them. You know, get the team back to the standard that they're accustomed to. 
Yeah, and I feel like it's interesting because you have a lot of pieces defensively, right? I mean, you think about, and I know that the Chargers were dealing, they've had some issues, they struggled to run the football, and they've been dealing with some injuries. But you look at it today, they had 13 first downs, the Jets are last at 14.5, they had 241 yards, the Giants are last at 258, they were 5 on five of 15 on third down, 33.3%, only four teams are south of that. And they were at 4.0 yards per play. The Giants are last at 4.1. So when you look at that, the defense did its part. And I think about the fact that Christian Gonzalez is going to be coming back from the injury, entering year two next season. To me, like the way that this team needs to approach the next offseason is all about the offense, whether it is, and we've talked about Bill and if he's going to be here or not, whether it's Bill or somebody else, whoever takes over this organization, if Bill decides that he doesn't want to coach here or the Patriots decide to move on and he is coaching elsewhere or he's just retired like the number one thing is going to be get the quarterback but after that they got to figure out what's going on with their offense because we've said it now for a couple of years and it's interesting to me that progressively the weapons get worse like you take you look at last year and I don't think anybody would say hey that was a great group of weapons that you had when we're talking about even though John who's been better in Atlanta but John and Hunter Henry and Jacoby Myers and Kendrick Bourne although he's underutilized last year nobody thought that was a great group of weapons and then somehow this year, Devontae Parker, part of that as well, this year it's gone in the opposite direction. So I just, I look at it from that context and I say, hey, Mac was not the perfect guy. Maybe he was never going to be a star quarterback in this league. Maybe the best he could have been was like 95% of what Kirk Cousins was. Like absolute best, good situation. You're a guy that can make the right plays, can be an accurate quarterback. Maybe the best, that's the best he was going to be. But the problem was like when you had this window with the rookie quarterback, you weren't able to put the pieces around him. Even if Mac, like I acknowledge Mac was bad and I want them to move on from Mac. I've said this on multiple occasions, but my biggest concern going into the future is can you provide the next guy with the proper stuff around him? I feel pretty good about the defense. Now they have decisions to make with the Josh Uche's, the Kyle Duggars of the world. But to me, whether Bill is here or not next year, if Bill is here, they have to find somebody that's going to help identify offensive personnel because right now it's just not working. I know Dave Ziegler is done with the Raiders. We'll see what he's doing long term. Bro is technically the GM, even though Bill's the head decision maker. If Robert Kraft is going to bring Bill back, they got to figure out the offense and they need to bring in a new set of eyes that has done nothing with the Patriots organization in the past. Because it feels like to me, it's always about bringing those guys back, right? Like even Bill O'Brien, there wasn't a search for an offensive coordinator. It was just like, hey, let's bring back our guy, Bill O'Brien. So to me, Whoever's here now, if it's a new regime, then that this question's answered. But that, to me, is the most important thing. You're in line to draft one of these quarterbacks in the top three. You better make sure you surround him with the right people because I, look, look at the 2021 draft class. Train Lance isn't playing. The old, Trevor Lawrence is playing, and Justin Fields may lose his job. But out of those five guys in the first round, the only guys that still have their jobs, Lawrence and Fields, and as we said, I don't know how much longer Fields is going to have that opportunity. So to me... Unless it's, you know, just this guy is uh, Andrew Luck, right? Like he's going to work no matter what. Like you got to do the right thing for the quarterback. And I just, that's my biggest worry going forward. Yeah, defensively, I think this team is solid as far as pieces, you know, for the future, for next year, moving forward. Offensively, there's definitely a lot of question marks from offensive line, quarterback. I think, obviously, I think Bill will end up or whoever – I think if Bill will still be there. They'll end up bringing back Ramondre. I think he'll be a key piece for this team going forward. And then tight ends, receivers. I said, I don't think you just dump out everybody. I think there's guys on this roster that 
maybe underperforming right now, but you bring in, you know, a quarterback, whether it's a rookie, veteran, you bring in maybe a veteran receiver, draft a, a receiver in the second, third round. And then after that, I think it's all about drawing up a scheme that works for all these guys together. I think that goes undernoted for a lot of teams. I think scheme is very important. You got to find out what each and every one of those guys do, especially at the quarterback position, find out his strengths, find out his weaknesses, and maximize his strengths to the to the max that you can and allow those receivers to do what they do best. The guy is a good vertical threat. Make sure he's you know going vertical enough times you know throughout a game to give your quarterback opportunities to you know get him the ball down the field. You have guys like Pop Douglas who are good in you know the short area, you know five to ten yards who can win one on one coverage and make plays with ball and make make plays with the ball in space. Make sure that guy's getting you know six or seven targets a game that so he can you know make yards for the quarterback. I think that's what is you know all about just structuring the offense around the guys that you have in the building and just maximizing their talent. I think that's been a shortcoming for this team the last two years. It's kind of just, we're just going to do it. Like, whatever it is, no matter, like, Devontae Parker's running you know, too many slants. Like, he's that's not necessarily, yeah. like, his game. I feel like that's, everybody's getting pigeonholed in the same box and just line up and run it. I feel like they got to scheme it up a little bit more and, you know, strategize a little bit more to maximize the talents of the guys that are there and, I said, whether it's some of the guys that are there right now or guys that are not in the building, whoever it is, they have to maximize those guys' talent. Yeah, and I look at it from this context. Go get yourself a number one weapon. And the guy that I would look at in the offseason, because I would, as we've mentioned, I'd be drafting the quarterback early. I would just offer T. Higgins all the money and just say, hey, man, like he's an unrestricted free agent. We know that the Bengals could decide to franchise him. But the problem for the Bengals is they're about to get really expensive because they've given yeah. Joe Burrow this massive contract and they got to pay Jamar Chase. Like Jamar Chase is obviously a better receiver than T. Higgins, but I like what we've seen from Demario Douglas. And if he can be that underneath guy, the yak guy, the yards after the catch, and then you get that big receiver on the outside that also like the guy's absolutely massive in T. Higgins, you can certainly use him in the red zone as well. Like I think about these teams that just double down and keep going after weapons, whether it be the Eagles, whether it be the Dolphins. These teams have all been successful, and part of it is this league, more so than ever before, has become about the weapons. You look across the NFL, like, the bet you could argue the best team, and I know not by record, and as we're recording, this game's about to start, so maybe I'll look like an idiot after this, but <laughs> you think about the Niners, right? Like, look what they have. They have a quarterback that is not insanely talented. I'm not, this is not an indictment on Brock Purdy, but he's not, like, we wouldn't put him in the same category as these elite guys, but you know what he has? He has Debo Samuel that can do crazy stuff after the catch. He has Christian McCaffrey, who's by far the most versatile running back in the NFL. And then you think about Debo Samuel, as you mentioned, and then Brandon Ayuk's an absolute stud. Like you think about those four guys, all four of those guys would be the best weapon on the Patriots. So it's to me about going out there and identifying those type of guys, because I feel like defense now, and look, defense has been better this year than it's been in previous seasons, like the offenses have been going down across the NFL but I feel like in terms of just the era it's way more difficult to play defense and if you can come like this team to me and look I get it's not the best offenses in the world they've proven that they can be pretty good on the defensive end and I would say going into next year they're going to be even better so to me that's the number one thing the two things this team needs to do is get the quarterback and then get a number one receiver and then like Demario Douglas 
He fits better if you haven't, like, if Kendrick Bourne's back, we'll see about that. He fits better if you have a traditional number one. Like, if you had T. Higgins, Demario Douglas, and T. Higgins, and then you had, whether it be Caleb Williams or Drake May, I'm like, okay, this is an exciting team that I can, and Christian Gonzalez comes back to the defense, right? Like, that's a team I could be excited about, and Ramondre Stevenson, right? That's a team I could be excited about going into next offseason. You got to have three or four guys offensively that are dynamic, that make the game easier on your quarterback to where your quarterback doesn't have to make an uh, amazing throw, you know, every single time, you know, he drops back the pass. You got to have guys that can, you know, make contested catches for him every now and then. That way he can give you a chance, you know, down the field. I think that's what sets some of these, you know, really good teams apart. And when you have three or four guys that are that dynamic, it's hard for teams to scheme it up against. You can't just, you know, double team one guy. I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll live with everybody else touching the ball as long as, Whatever, say they have to, as long as T. Higgins doesn't get the ball, we'll be fine. Like, we're not worried about anybody else. That's why I see teams like the Dolphins. You got Tyree Hill, Jalen Waddle. Like, how, how do you cover both of those guys? You have two vertical threats, and then you got a Braxton Berrios or guys like that, and, or Moster running a 4 3 out the middle. It's you got A Chain, you know, stressing you. And then you got, you got the Eagles. You got A.J. Brown. You got Devontae Smith. And you got Jalen Hurst, who's a, a threat himself. DeAndre Swift. There's a, a lot of threats on the field. So, it, applies so much pressure to the defense and the defense has to adapt to you versus vice versa where the defense can dictate to the Patriots offense because like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not threatened by much right now. I'm not threatened by your quarterback, not threatened by your receivers. Best thing you got is your run game. And I said, well, we'll fire with that. You can run it all you want and force you into third and longs and your quarterback's not going to be able to make throws. So I think that thing, that's an important thing for them moving forward is to find guys that I feel like, that can dictate to the defense and dictate coverage and just make them think. I say, if you can put a, a defensive coordinator in a spin cycle a little bit with the amount of guys that you have on the field, because he's worried about so many different guys that can beat him on third now, or so many guys that can affect him on first and second down. It's tough. Like I'm, I remember playing the 49ers a few years ago. It was like 2020. And I said, they beat us throwing, literally all two or three yard passes. Like it was, it was insane. Like they didn't, they didn't throw anything down the field, probably longest pass for like 10 yards or so, but that's, that was their game plan. They have guys that are just great with the ball in space and they're going to do that until you figure it out or until you try to stop it. So I think you just got to have those those type of guys on your team. (laughs) Those receiver screens to Debo Samuel are a little bit different than the screens to Devontae Parker. No disrespect to Devontae Parker. That's not, that's not, that's not his, his game. And that's like kind of what I'm saying. Like we're, we're throwing slip screens to Devontae. He's lined up in a slot, you know, trying to beat a, a slot corner who's five yards inside. That's, that's not really his thing. Like if it's Julian Edelman or Jacoby Myers, yeah, that's, or Pop Douglas. Yeah. Then I'm, I'm fine with that. But I, like a lot of these guys are, you know, being put in spaces where they don't necessarily excel. Now, as we're recording, the Cardinals currently have a 17 to 3 lead on the Steelers. There's like three minutes left in the third quarter as we're recording right now. Kenny Pickett went out of this game. They brought in Mitchell Trubisky, who's their backup. And Mitchell Trubisky, I don't think he's that big of a downgrade from Pickett. I don't think Pickett's a great player. But the Patriots play Pittsburgh on Thursday night. So that becomes like another winnable game that now you would from a future perspective you would like to lose but Arizona would be picking up its third win which means the Patriots move into that top two area with a now I think technically they were third entering the week but the point being is they would have two wins and 
Arizona would have three, which puts the Patriots in a prime position to get one of the top two quarterbacks, whether it be Caleb Williams or Drake May, depending on what the Bears do with that number one pick. So now that becomes a huge game. And I was just thinking about this. My word, this is going to be a standalone game on Thursday where you have no option of like, think about it from a like a fan on a Thursday night. Now, the good thing is this, James, if the Celtics win on Monday, they advance to Vegas on Thursday and they'll play the winner of that Milwaukee, New York game. So at least we'll have that Something like, else beforehand. That would be a good thing. <laughs> yes. That's going to be a baseball score on Thursday night. Whoa. It might be a 6-3 a to three or a 6-5. to five. Not going to be a high-scoring affair. I think both defenses are extremely solid. I know the Steelers, you know, previous, before today, they were you know starting to pick it up a little bit, running the football, scoring a little bit more points. But I know against the Patriots defense, they're not going to score that many points as long as they come out and shut down the Steelers' run game. But, I, yeah, I anticipate that one being <laughs> – a slugfest. There'll be a lot of a lot of physical plays going on, not a lot of scoring on a short week, too, where you can't game plan the necessarily the way you want to. Can't imagine a lot of scores, a lot of points being scored in that one. <laughs> yeah. I guess the one thing is I'll be happy on Sunday that we're not watching that game. We're watching it on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. We can watch the red zone and stuff on Sunday. Yeah. All right. So I want to get your take on the uh, college football playoff, the selection committee. But before we do that, have you ever been mic'd up for a game? Yes, I have. Okay, so I have to. So Jabril Peppers wasn't mic'd up last week. Okay, so he goes over to Saquon Barkley. If for anybody that missed it, I'm sure most of you have seen this on social media. Saquon Barkley and Jabril Peppers, both from New Jersey, both like super high recruits. So he goes up to him after the game and he says to Saquon Barkley, "You're lucky we're ass, right?" And <laughs> it's true. I mean, yes. That's, most tip, teams, that's typical like, the, conversation. That's like <laughs> yeah, like, right. So like, the, I mean, we're looking at the Patriots have lost three straight games where their opponent hasn't scored more than 10 points, okay? So any other team in the NFL in all likelihood wins that game last week. I thought it was an innocent comment by Jabril Peppers, right? Like, he, he like there's nothing he said that was untruthful. It's like, we suck right now. Like, like it's, so I didn't think it was a big deal, right? But I knew sort of what the media reaction was going to be. So Jabril Peppers has to answer questions about this. And he go, he like, he's answering questions for like five minutes. I'm like, just leave the guy alone. There's nothing he said that was untruthful. But I give him credit. Like he felt like he had to clear the air and basically say what he was saying. But this is my thing. It was not him that was mic'd up. Saquon Barkley was mic'd up. So I feel like that's almost unfair that they used that audio. At the very least, they should have been like, hey, let's check in with Jabril Peppers before we use that. Yeah, because if you're Jabril Peppers, you're like, no, it's one thing if you're Barkley and Barkley said it to Peppers because Barkley signed off or Barkley agreed to be mic'd up. Jabril Peppers, he may not have known, probably didn't, right, that Saquon Barkley was mic'd up. So I legitimately felt bad for Jabril Peppers there. Yeah, I felt bad for him. I felt like that was the NFL screwed him over when it came to that. That's that's typical conversation post-game, especially, you know, guys that you know, guys that you've competed against. They were former teammates and all of that. Yeah, I feel like if Saquon were to say it, yeah, then it's fair game. But if, you know, Jabril Peppers is saying it post-game, yeah, you put him in a tough spot and then you're posting it on social media right after the game, making him look like, you know, like he like he doesn't give us, you know, you know what and all that. But truly, yeah. he, the defense, they're going out there flying around trying to win the football game and, you know, the offense isn't helping them. And then they, they have to do a better job of that. If you're going to do something like that where you know it's going to make you know, the other person look a certain type of way, I think you got to get some clarification. 
Yeah. So I felt bad for Jabril Peppers. I'm like, dude, you guys are making this guy look like a. He's like the ultimate team guy too. Like he plays his ass off, and the team stinks. Like, I mean, come on. Like that was that was totally like. I think Jabril Peppers is one of the hardest playing players on the team, and I think he's had a great season. Like you could argue, and I don't even think you could argue this is his best NFL season, and he has to answer questions about this throughout the week. All right. So I did want to get your take, of course. You work for the Big Ten Network. You guys didn't get the greatest Big Ten championship game. I don't think anybody expected Iowa to put up much of an effort. But Michigan goes on. They get the number one seed. And then the announcement comes in. Number two was Washington. No surprise there. They I was actually surprised they beat Oregon again. But not a surprise they got number two after they won on Friday night. And then you have the number three is Texas. Which I feel like some people thought that Texas may not make it in. And I'm thinking to myself, well... They beat the SEC champs on their home field. Like they automatically get Yeah. SEC fans are trying to say, oh, Georgia and Alabama should get I'm like, wait, hold on. Are we just going to exclude the game? And then number four comes in and it's Alabama. They show the reaction from Michigan and they didn't seem like incredibly enthusiastic about this. I think, quite frankly, Texas got the best draw. They get to play the Sugar Bowl. So that game is in New Orleans and they get the West Coast team, Washington, covered to them. That's going to be a pro Texas crowd. And then. Michigan has to play Alabama. So you eliminate those one of those two teams. So I think that Texas got a really good draw. But what did you make about Florida State going undefeated? They're down to their third string quarterback. They beat Louisville. Now we know Sam Travis wouldn't have been able to play in the playoff, but the backup would have been able to play. You go 13-0. By the way, you beat the shit out of LSU. Apparently that game doesn't count. And Alabama gets in. Because it's like, so basically the justification that the committee made, and I guess it technically is in the criteria, is an injured player. So because, and we've actually seen this before, because remember Ohio State, it was Braxton Miller went down and then Cardell Jones, Jones stepped in. that guy was, that guy was hilarious. Remember he had, he had the press <laughs> yeah, conference to play. say he was coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot he's like, I don't, what was like, I don't, I don't like, go to school, he's like, I don't go to school to play football or what do you, I forgot the little <laughs> phrase he had too. Yeah. So I'll say this. I think from an entertainment perspective, this is the most entertaining playoff they have. But Florida State got porked. What else could they do? They went 13 and 0. I thought I thought FSU got hosed. I think it's some some BS. Like the one other undefeated team doesn't get into the college football playoff because their starting quarterback is hurt. Like that's that's unfair. So the just winning doesn't matter. Just like I don't even with their you know starting quarterback being out, I feel like Florida State can compete with all four of these teams that are in the playoff right now. Maybe they may not score as many points as they would with Jordan Travis at quarterback, but their defense is good enough to hold yeah. all those teams to you know seventeen points or less to make the game extremely competitive. I think they got hosed. I know they would have never heard the end of it if a. No SEC teams were put into the college football playoff. We know how much they they hype that conference up. They'll put three of those teams in the playoff if they <laughs> if they were anywhere close to it. That's how much they favor them. Like those teams, they they can lose three, four games, and they'll all still be ranked in the top twenty five. They'll have seven teams in the top twenty five. When I don't think necessarily they're that much better than any teams in the other conferences. Yeah, I thought they just really got the short end of the stick. It's it's very unfortunate. Like I, I like this Alabama football team. They look, they them being in it, they very well have a good opportunity to win the championship, which they they always do. I just think Florida State, they like <laughs> what else do they have to do? Like, <laughs> like I get it, their their quarterbacks hurt, but like 
going yeah. undefeated doesn't matter at a power five conference. Like you say, their strength of schedule, all of that, woofy woof. Like Alabama very well should have lost to Auburn. They they should have lost. Like yeah. you you don't think Florida State's better than Auburn? Like I don't like I don't know. Yeah. Fourth and fourth and what? Like forever. Fourth and a mile. So like yeah, it's crazy to me. And like they thought last week that Florida State was better than Alabama, but now they think that Alabama is better than Florida State. So yeah, it's just and the other thing is this, and I get it, the playoffs expanding, so it's probably not that big of a deal next year because these teams are getting in. But then what's the point of playing these games? Why would Florida State schedule LSU? Like you're not rewarded for scheduling a team that's won national championships recently that from a recruiting standpoint is always one of the better teams in the country in LSU. Like that team's loaded, not to mention their quarterback has a chance to win the Heisman and Florida State made that guy look not very good in that game. Like Jaden Daniels was not good. So that performance against maybe the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, that means nothing. Just scrap that out because your quarterbacks are... And like you earned the spot. So this like, I don't know, I guess it's the criteria of the four best teams as it is right now. Like, I just don't understand how you don't re- like it makes no sense to me. The college football playoff makes no sense to me. They move the goalposts every year. And to me, Florida State is now paying for it. So like, let's think about this from the other perspective. If Florida State won the conference and then it was Alabama that went undefeated and they won with their backup quarterback in a scenario, is Alabama getting in? Yes, Alabama's getting in. Yes, it's because it's Florida State, (laughs) right? Like the three teams they're deciding between is like Texas, Florida State, and Alabama. Well, Alabama and Texas are two of the most powerful programs in the country. They have crazy financial backing and Florida State's like a blue blood. They've won national championships. But that's the easiest team to leave out. Like if Texas or Alabama gets left out, who knows? Who knows what happens if those teams are left out? Like may, maybe Texas is like Texas would be pissed. We'd hear from all their like people that donate to the school. Same thing. I thought Mike Norvell, and if you haven't seen it, he released a statement on Twitter. I thought it was really well said, like what he put out there. But I just, I felt awful for those kids because they worked all year to get to that point. You go undefeated at a Power Five conference, and hey, be, and I felt bad for Travis. Like Travis is. Yeah. He's, he looks up, he's like, oh, we're not in this because I'm hurt. Yeah, well, what could he have I, done? He got I hurt. Blame, I get blame for all this. Yeah. yeah. And I, I hate the, like, the Alabama team was, you know, different week three than what they are now. Every team is different from week three to, you know, to the conference championship. Like, I don't, I don't understand. The whole body of work, it matters. Being undefeated matters. You're a power five team. You're undefeated. You win your conference. I don't care who your starting quarterback is. I'm like, like, come on, man. Like, what is like, what if the kid goes out there in the playoff and he's they get in the playoff, he goes out there and throws for 300 yards? Like, well, like, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, the kid may have the game of his life. We don't know, yeah. you know, what, what well, we can expect and, from that football. <laughs> and you know what the other thing is? Yeah, they're different in week th- than they were against Texas because Jalen Milrow is better. Yeah. But they also, to what you said earlier, just looked like shit against Auburn. It could have easily <laughs> it's lost like, the it's Iron like, Bowl. It's like, yeah, that you literally happened less than, yeah, that happened like eight days ago where they could have easily lost that game. So anyway, I'm looking at I like the fact that it's on New Year's Day. I, New Year's Day, rather. I don't love the New Year's Eve one. I, I think New Year's Day is better for this. So right now they have Michigan is plus 170 to win it on FanDuel. Alabama plus 200, Texas plus 250, Washington is plus 750. I actually think I'm going to put a little bit on Texas at plus 250 just because the odds there. I think they beat Washington in advance to the national championship game. So I'd rather put money on them than Michigan or Alabama. But as it sits right now, who do you like the most to win this championship? 
It's tough, man. Um, Michigan, their passing offense hasn't been consistent enough for me these last several weeks. But that their defense is tough. I feel like they'll they'll hold any offense. I might go with Texas though. They they just seem like the most dangerous football team. They're explosive in the pass game. They have a good enough run game to you know put you on your heels as well. And their defense, they're not shutting teams down, but they you know they make the stops. But it's just one. This is one of those years where it's a toss up. Like there's no one team that just sticks out above the others. And Alabama's just as dangerous. This kid Milrow, like I. Like them getting in, he's he's the the biggest X factor in like all these games. He's the one guy, like you can have him bottled up, and then he spins out, throws the ball seventy yards down the field, and they have these receivers that make crazy plays for him, you know, week in and week out. So they're they're dangerous, but I think I like Texas out of all these teams. I feel like yeah, they they've been down for some years, and like this is their opportunity in the playoff in quite some time. I think. Quinn Ewers, Xavier Worthy. I love watching Xavier Worthy, that receiver that they have. He's he's fun to watch. Yeah, and for Alabama, that kid Isaiah Bond has come on ever yeah, since he made 17, that. He's been yeah. good for the season, but he made the big catch against Auburn. He was awesome in the game on Saturday night. I like Milrow, too. I think he's been really good. Like I, I still don't understand why they didn't start him in one of those games, but hey, if that like worked to get him to play better. And the thing I like about Texas, Texas is like pissed off. They have, for some reason, like, Maybe they thought there's a chance they couldn't get in. They're pissed off. And I think Sarkeesian is like an awesome offensive play caller. Like they come up with some stuff where I think that, and he coaches with like huge balls. Like he will take chances. Like he does not give a shit. So he'll like, he'll go right after those Michigan and Alabama defenses, depending on they get. And I don't want to just like count out Washington, but I just, I like Texas in that spot over Washington. But hey, I liked Oregon over Washington last week. So who knows? You can't can't forget about Washington. They're dangerous. Their offense, they can score any club. I'm just worried about their defense. Although I was impressed with the way they played against Oregon this this past week, they bowed up and played a lot more physical in this matchup. But yeah, that that Texas offense, man, they're they're explosive. But all all these teams, though, I think Michigan plays a brand of ball that you know none of these other teams play. As far as if they can run the football at their will, I don't think any team can stop them. But if you shut that down, you force J.J. McCarthy to have to drop back, throw it 30 times, then, yeah, they probably end up losing that football game. Uh, it's hard to choose. It should be should be a fun, fun playoff. I can't wait for the 12-team playoff. Then it'll be even more exciting. <laughs> and one thing's for sure, this playoff will be a lot more fun than the game we watched today and the game that we'll watch on Thursday night against the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> that is three-time Super Bowl champ, James White. James, thanks so much for the time, man. Appreciate it as always. All right, great stuff there from James White. We had to mix in some college football because, of course, it has not been a great season for the Patriots. And that was a big story heading into the day. Who was going to be the four teams in the college football playoff? We knew Michigan. We knew, of course, that Washington was going to be in. Was Texas going to get left out? Was Alabama going to get left out? Was Florida State going to get left out? And obviously, Florida State was the team that got left out. But, man. I am really not looking forward to this matchup against the Steelers coming up on Thursday. The offense was bad in this one. I would say I can't imagine the offense would be worse on Thursday night, but I can because they're going up against a Pittsburgh Steelers defense that is really good. So this could be even more trouble for the Patriots. All right, coming up next, you'll hear our conversation with Caitlin Cooper as we preview the Celts and the Pacers coming up on Monday night. Cash in on balling out this NBA season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 Moneyline bet. 
That's 150 bucks if your team wins. All right, so how about this for the in-season tournament game coming up on Monday night? Celtics and Pacers, a same-game parlay for plus 196. Celts on the money line. Derek White, alternate line, 10 points. Derek White, alternate line, 4 assists. Drew Holiday for 4 rebounds. And Tyrese Halliburton for 20 points. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to join. The app is easy to use, and there's a wide range of ways to bet, including quick bets, live same-game parlays, the Parlay Hub, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and turn dimes into dollars this season. FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NBA. First online real money wager only. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Time to transition from the Patriots to one of the good teams in town, the Celtics. They won an ugly one against Philly on Friday. No Embiid, no Maxi in that one. Jason Tatum got booted. He's up to 32 turnovers over his last seven, most in the NBA during that stretch. Jalen struggled again, continues to be one of the most inefficient high-volume guys. 17th in total shots, 32nd in points. Tatum, for context, 8th in shots, 7th in points. Derek White and Al Horford, though, they were awesome. White now leads the NBA in total plus minus. So maybe they were looking ahead to the in-season tournament game on Monday. And here to preview that with us, it is Caitlin Cooper. She covers the Pacers. She is the creator of Basketball She Wrote. You can follow her on Twitter, or X, I should say, at C2 underscore Cooper. Caitlin, thanks so much for taking some time. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I had to relive the historic loss that was the November 1st beatdown, but I'm ready and prepared to speak about this matchup. Yeah, let me say on that, we were so, well, I should only speak for myself. On the pod, we were disappointed because we were all excited about that game. Tyrese Halliburton had the great start to the season, and like last night, there was no Tyrese Halliburton in the game, so we kind of figured it would be a Celtics blow, but it felt like that could have been a good game, and maybe we would have more to go on in this game coming up tomorrow night. So that was just a disappointment. So I'm hoping, I know he missed last night, what was it, a knee bruise and an upper respiratory infection against the Heat. Now, I know they still won the game, but are we going to, like, he's going to play tomorrow, right? Or else this is going to be not that fun. I mean, cross your fingers, yeah, because Boston got to do a lot of things in that matchup that I don't think they'll get to do if Tyrese is available on Monday. Lots of ducking under against TJ McConnell, lots of ducking under against Andrew Nemhard. Nemhard is a very good player. I'm high on him, but he had trouble involving his teammates in that particular game because of what Boston was doing defensively. So Tyrese almost shooting the same percentage as Steph Curry did on pull-up threes during his 2015-16 MVP run. 42% 42% on 7.1 pull-up threes per game for Tyrese Halliburton. So you got to defend him a little bit further from the basket than you do with the other point guards for the Pacers. Yeah, it's insane the season he's having. And before we get into him, so last night, Saturday night, they go into Miami, no Halliburton, no BAM for Miami, but they put up a 146.9 offensive rating. They hit 16 of their 32 threes. TJ McConnell goes nuts, 20 off the bench. Our old friend Aaron Neesmith goes for 20 off the bench. Bruce Brown had 30, local kid, by the way, here in Massachusetts. Obi Toppin has 22. So how did they do this without Halliburton last night? I I mean, I looked at that when it came out, Halliburton's not playing. I chalked it up, hey, this is probably a scheduled loss with no Halliburton. How do they win this one? Yeah, I mean, it was always going to be a critical battle between which was going to hold up better. Indiana's offense without Tyrese, which struggled quite a bit last year, there's a massive swing in their offensive rating when Tyrese is on the floor versus off. I think their offense is better than their number one overall when Tyrese is playing. It drops to like 25th, which is the equivalent of the Utah Jazz when he doesn't. 
versus Miami's <laughs> defense without Bam. And it turns out Miami's defense without Bam had a lot more problems than Indiana's offense. So Kevin Love at the five, they were having to do a lot of blitzing. And particularly in that fourth quarter, there was a moment where they actually blitzed TJ McConnell at the logo to get the ball out of his hands. <laughs> I mean, he was he was nine of 10, but they're having to do a lot of things to take care of the fact that they didn't have any rim protection behind them. So the Pacers were just getting around the edge of those blitzes. And then they were sinking in off of Obi Toppin and Obi hasn't shot the ball super well this year, but he made a number of threes last night. Bruce shot the ball well. So when you're blitzing and you make one or two passes, that's pretty easy to break if you have guys who can knock down shots. And last night, the Pacers did have guys who can knock down shots. So a good step forward for them to be able to get a win without Tyrese actually being available. Yeah, I'm guessing that is probably the first time and the last time that TJ McConnell will be getting (laughs) blitzed at the logo for his career. So it was a career night in that sense for TJ McConnell. So Tyrese Halliburton entering play Saturday because we're recording here on Sunday morning. 11.8 assists first, 27 points, 10, three-point percentage. You mentioned the pull-up threes. He's 15th in percentage, and he's second in makes per game. And the Pacers, they're on-off differential via cleaning of the glass, plus plus 16.5 with Halliburton, the on-off differential, 98th percentile. So we, of course, as we mentioned off the top, didn't get to see him in this first game. But give us an idea of what's it like to watch this guy on a nightly basis, because from my perspective right now, like it's always been, hey, like Jokic and Curry, they're the guys, the engines of the best offenses in the NBA. And we've seen that for an extended period of time. Luka generates great offense, even if you don't like the one guy having the ball the entire time. But Halliburton's now like he's creeping into the top five conversation in terms of offensive engines. What makes him so special? I always refer to him as a counterculture. He does a lot of things differently than what you think the norm would be. So like two years ago, I tracked every jump pass that he had made, which isn't something that you normally think of people doing. But when he jumps, he commits defenders to a passing lane rather than committing himself to a pass. He jumps because he has an idea, not because he's ran out of one. That makes him very deceptive, as does his combination of finger roll, floater, skip pass. It's very hard to predict which one of those three things he's going to do in addition to his lob. His shot release, the push shot, I always say too that like he shoots like one of those robots from the Tokyo Olympics. And I think it baits players into thinking they have more time to contest his shot than they actually do because his release is still very quick. He rejects screens more than almost every player in the NBA. I think he ranks second in screen rejections per 100 possessions. He goes away from actions to put defenses into emergency rotations a lot of times. And then there's just no waste with him. He wants to play fast. He wants to get downhill. They're going to play in transition off of makes just as much as they are going to off of misses. And this year, I think the biggest change is their half-court efficiency has really gone up. They were like 21st in half-court efficiency last year, and now they're right around first. I didn't check that number this morning, but that's what they've been for most of the year, and that's because they even play fast in the half-court. They get into their actions very quickly, and they get to the next action very quickly as well. And he's just always off an inbound pass. He's always peering over his shoulder, looking for opportunities for hit-ahead passes, and he's just a very cerebral player. So a pleasure to watch him this year. I think he's been one of the best players in the NBA. What is that thing he does, too, like that celebration sort of thing he just kind of like skips after the it's, it's kind of funny so he's, he's very enjoyable to watch and it's crazy now looking back and I know it was a weird draft 2020 because of the COVID situation across the league where guys are getting overdrafted or underdrafted it's crazy that he landed in Sacramento now he's on the Pacers which I thought was a terrible trade at the time for Sacramento I mean you can understand why Sacramento did it but the upside with Sabonis just didn't really ever make sense to me but hey they did get into the playoffs but speaking of Halliburton Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I I thought I heard him say, or somebody said he hasn't played on TNT yet in his career. So like this would be his first TNT game. So 
just in general, how fired up is the fan base and the organization to have this game? Because from my perspective as a Celtics fan, we've seen a lot of deep playoff runs over the past couple of years. I was incredibly impressed with the end season tournament, especially what we saw in the final night on Tuesday. Like I'm fired up, but I got to imagine the Pacers have got to be incredibly motivated for this game because they have a chance to make it to Vegas and win something that's never happened before. I mean, this is going to be cool for them. Yeah, I mean, two things from over the summer when Tyrese played with Team USA, he did an interview, I believe, with Brian Windhorst talking about how the Pacers aren't really on national TV and that that was going to be more visibility than he had had playing with the Pacers. But also when he got back on media day, he was asked what his biggest takeaway was from that experience. And he said, I'm tired of losing. I haven't had a winning season since I was a freshman in college and I want to have the chance to win. And he's talked about like being able to compete for a quote unquote championship and having higher stakes than this, I think matters to them. And seeing them down in Atlanta and what was practically an all-star game come early where both teams are putting up 150 points. He and Buddy Heald really closing that out. They didn't come from a culture of winning a lot of games in Sacramento, and that hasn't translated yet here with the Pacers either. So to see them show up when the stakes are higher, I think that that matters for the Pacers in taking a step forward. So, you know, if, if the Pacers wouldn't have done well and they wouldn't have gotten 4-0, of course, it would have been gimmicky and meaningless. But because they've won all of these games, that banner is going to mean a lot to them. Yeah, no doubt about it. And so I was looking at just their, I, I've seen it them play a, a couple of times. I did see part of that Atlanta game, but I was looking at their defense and they came into Saturday night 28th. I probably maybe went to 29th after the performance that they had against the Heat. Their offense was great, but it seems like their strategy has sort of just kind of run teams off the three-point line. They give up five fewer three-point attempts than anybody else. So they clearly give up the most twos. So they give up the most points in the paint. They also foul a ton, 28.8 free throws per game coming into Saturday, the most in the league. So I know part of it, and maybe the easy answer is they don't have defensive personnel, but can you explain the strategy? Like, is their goal basically, that, are they trying to just like out math teams by getting more opportunities, taking more threes? Is that sort of their game plan to get around the defensive personnel? Is that kind of why this strategy looks as bizarre as it does? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the strategy is almost completely flipped from last year. Last year, they really put bodies in the paint. They had a very exaggerated and early nail presence. They were pretty overzealous with the low man. They did a lot to try to protect and shrink the floor behind Tyrese when he would get mismatches. And they gave up a fairly high amount of corner three frequency, but they were still giving up a ton of points in the paint. So this year, I think it's kind of a looking at that math and being like, well, at least we can take away something. So they are limiting threes better than any team in the league, but it's not even so much about like aggressive closeouts. It's that they stay home on pretty much everything. There's been a few adjustments to that since the last time the Pacers played the Celtics, but they defend the pick and roll two on two for the most part. If that guard doesn't get over chasing the screen, then they'll late switch and veer into the roll man, which leads to some mismatches around the rim, leads to some second chance opportunities because of the size that they give up there. And then on post-ups, a lot of the time, they really try hard not to double. So the last time these two teams played, Tatum got a lot of mismatches against TJ McConnell, against Benedict Mathern, as did Jalen Brown, and they they weren't sending extra help. Now here in some recent matchups, they've kind of realized, hey, we, we actually do need to send some other bodies there. It's so like when they played the Raptors, they were doubling Pascal Siakam from the beginning, which I think is going to be important in this particular game because the Celtics have been so effective. I think they're number one in post-up efficiency this year, mainly because of Tatum and Przingis. Tatum is so good at pivoting off of both feet and his footwork is so pristine. I think that they're going to have to be a little bit more aggressive with that. But the math that you just said is what makes this matchup so interesting, right? Because the Pacers allowed what they discouraged in that last game. That was the most makes and threes that they've given up this year and the most attempts they've given up this year 
Boston, number one in three-point attempt rate. The Pacers, the best team at limiting threes, but they give up a ton in the paint, and the Celtics, 29th in drives per 100 possessions. So if the Celtics are going to start not settling for threes as much and are going to drive the basketball, this is the matchup to do it. Yeah, and that's been a talking point for the first 19 games or so of the season with the Celtics is they don't get to the free throw line. They don't get to the basket. They rank 28th in drives coming into the weekend. So it's something they don't do. So clearly, hopefully they take advantage of this like they did in the first game against the Pacers. So on the flip side, the Pacers have, I guess every year we're going to say this now, the best offense in NBA history. And you mentioned sort of the pace and the running off of makes, et cetera. But you look at this team, they're scoring the most points off drives. They're fifth in three-point makes per game. They're second in makes in the restricted area. So I guess the easy answer is why is this team so good offensively is they have one of the best offensive players in the NBA and Tyrese Halliburton. But is there anything else you can highlight of why this team's been so successful offensively this season besides just Halliburton being outstanding? I think it all goes, a lot of it goes back to the pick and roll. They've been, I, I didn't look up this number this morning, but they've been number one in points per chance scored out of picks. And some of that goes back to the fact that it's it's interesting to watch them because they don't set a lot of contact picks. Almost all of it is ghost screens and they have a lot of different screeners that they will use. So Tyrese and Miles are like the number three pick and roll combination in the NBA amongst partners who have at least 100 screens. But you're also going to see Buddy Heald setting a ton of ghost screens to reignite their action. They don't do a lot of isolations. So they're going to get to the next set predominantly from that. They'll look for, you know, where's the weakest defender on the floor. So if you can take them out of the pick and roll action, And you can take Tyrese out and really be pressuring him full court, which I know the Celtics have done more of this year. They don't force a lot of turnovers, but they do have people play later into the clock because they're applying that full court and three-quarter court pressure. Those are the types of matchups where the Pacers have struggled a little bit. So like when they played against Orlando's link, that wasn't just the link. That was because Jalen Suggs was picking up Tyrese full court and then preventing them from getting into those actions and forcing somebody else to initiate and then denying like the pass back to Tyrese and and the Pacers just will have more trouble getting into their next action than they normally would in those types of scenarios. So I think Boston is capable of doing those types of things, especially with one thing that I love when I'm watching them this year is how much indecision they sow with all of the cross matches that they'll use and how much they move Drew Holiday around. Yeah, Holiday's been awesome for them. Miles Turner, you mentioned, this has been a big talking point where it was a big talking point like a couple of years ago when the Gordon Hayward thing was on the table. And apparently the Celtics wouldn't want it more than just Miles Turner in the deal. And people at the time were mad about that with Danny Ainge, although it worked out. I mean, the Celtics went to a finals after that. Robert Williams is good and it ended up getting you Drew Holiday in the long run. So I think they made the right move in the long term with this situation. But in terms of Miles Turner, you mentioned in terms of their picks and whatnot, in picking uh, as the role man, he's what 1.50 points per possession, which is the 93rd percentile. I know his scoring's down a little bit because it looks like the three point shooting 37.3% down to 32.9%. The dunks are down a little bit to 7.5% of his attempts compared to 9.5%. But what type of season has he had for this Pacers team? Yeah, I mean, just their pick and roll combo. Anytime you can play with Tyrese in the pick and roll, you're probably going to be a better player. I think he's pretty good at getting guys paid and and enhancing their performances. I think Miles overall has made strides the last two seasons in terms of being a complimentary scorer and a play finisher. He was shooting the ball better at the beginning of the season. I think for the most part, I don't necessarily believe in the concept of a stretch five overall, at least with regard to him, and that a lot of times bigs don't come out extra steps. That's kind of what they're willing to live with. Even the Celtics said that a year ago. I think 
Miles had made like seven threes in a game, and they're like, that's that's what we were willing to give up. If he does put tension on the defense, it's a lot of times it's from like a weak side stunt or somebody jabbing out on the perimeter. It won't be because the big came out. But something that did stand out a little bit here recently is they played the Blazers and they lost that game, which was a bad loss for them. But the first team that I've seen do this is they put Malcolm Brogdon onto Miles and then mm. put eight put Aiton on uh, Obi Toppin and had Aiton sagging off into the paint. And Obi shot the three pretty well last night when he was being left open, but that allowed the Blazers to switch all those pick and rolls. And if there's something that Tyrese has been limited against, and if you are going to limit the Pacers, he's not as good out of the pick and roll against switches as he is versus drop, as you would imagine, given what his three-point shooting is. So they weren't just getting to their main action. So that is something that I look at this matchup when I talked about Drew and the cross matches. The Celtics have been a lot more willing to put him on Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, Jakob Pertl, and be doing some of that so that they can switch the stuff out top and play you deeper into the clock. So I do wonder if that's a look that we'll see on Monday, if maybe they'll look at putting Drew on Miles and putting whichever centers available, whether that's Al Horford or Christoph Porzingis, onto Obi Toppin and just living with what they get from Obi as a shooter. Yeah, that's an interesting point because and maybe Brogdon will do the Celtics a favor being in Portland now and seeing what they saw in that game because you're right. I mean, they do that all the time with Drew, whether it's Embiid, whether they, they put him on Giannis, they'll put him on big guys all the time. He can defend up and Derek White is such a great on-ball defender as well. And he's incredibly difficult to screen. I wonder if that is the matchup where they just say, hey, let's put Drew on Miles Turner. We'll put Derek White on Tyrese Halliburton, and they can just switch that stuff. Now, of course, they'll have to help on the role with Derek White switching onto a guy like Miles Turner, but you're probably right. That's probably the matchup that we'll see. That's what I'd expect. They put Drew on him, and then they can have Tatum sort of roaming as that free safety. They like him in that role to begin with. Like now, going back to the Brooklyn Nets series a couple of years ago, Tatum will take on the best matchups like he did with Kevin Durant, but I think he's best really as a help defender. So that's probably the matchup. They throw Drew on Miles Turner and, and go from there. And, and Drew, <laughs> Drew can hold up really against anybody. So I think that could be a favorable matchup for the Celtics. And what I like so much about that when the Celtics do it in the games that I've watched is because typically it's a big guarding a big in the post and the double team comes from a guard. So the big can see over that double coming. When it's the Celtics and Drew's guarding Joel Embiid or he's guarding Carl Anthony Towns, they almost always have Perzingis or Al Horford come double then it's a hang time pass because you're having to pass over the top of a guy with a nine foot standing reach. Like that's insane. <laughs> so you have way more time to recover out of those doubles. And even if, even if you don't, maybe you're just willing to live with what you get out of miles Turner in the post. Plus the Celtics do a lot of the scram switching as well. So, you know, Al Horford can rotate over there and do an, an off ball switch, or if it's Porzingis, whichever one of them is available. So I do think that that's a pretty strong possibility. I will say that when the Pacers played in Atlanta, they started Buddy Heald and Aaron Neesmith instead of Benedict Mathern and Obi Toppin. Buddy's remained the starter since then, but Obi ended up replacing Aaron. I think Aaron could be an X factor because if the Pacers do counter and are like, hey, we're just going to go ahead and start Aaron instead of Toppin, Aaron shot the ball considerably better than Obi has this year. So if you are roaming off of him, he's a little bit better equipped to make you pay for making that decision. Yeah, and Neesmith, too. He, maybe he's going to have a chip on his shoulder because they went at him a little bit in the first game, Tatum and Jalen Brown. And I remember what they signed him to, three for 33, I believe yeah. it was. So they gave him the extension. I remember when the Celtics drafted him. This was, too, the weird COVID draft. And he was getting profiled as, like, the best shooter in the draft. Jerry Stackhouse was saying he reminds him of Ray Allen. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm super fired up. They're getting this great shooter. And then he couldn't get onto the court. Ime was not the biggest fan of Aaron Neesmith when Ime was the coach of the team. But to, and look, three for 33, it seems like a reasonable deal going forward for Neesmith. Do they feel like he's part of their core going forward? Do they just look at it and say, hey, this is a good deal. 
for both sides and it's a movable contract if we're not in love with the player. No, I mean, I, I think that they're really happy with the contributions that they've gotten from Aaron. He's taken a step forward. Headed into this season, he expected to be playing more at the three instead of at the four. So he really worked on being able to put the ball on the floor above the break. He's been better at attacking closeouts and getting all the way to the basket, as well as working as being a ghost screener, because that's what Rolly thought he was going to have. As it turns out, they've needed him back at the four spot again. And kind of like what we just said about Drew, Aaron's not the defender that Drew is, but he is the only person on the roster who gives them the flexibility where it's like, Hey, we want to use miles as a weak side rim protector. We can put Aaron Neesmith just like last night. He was the person playing at the five. Like they Mm -hmm. had lineups out there with OB quote unquote at the nominal five, but he was the person guarding Kevin Love. They got into foul trouble in Philadelphia and it was almost a blessing in disguise because then they could put Aaron onto Drew or onto Joel Embiid and really front Joel Embiid. And that just kind of took Philadelphia out of their offense somewhat. So they have that option, but that's why this matchup's so tricky for the Pacers because defensively, I think the best thing that they do is when they switch ball screens with Aaron at the five and, and leave Miles kind of out of that stuff and just use him and his passive size to keep him around the rim, like what we just mentioned on the flip side. But if you do that, who is Miles Turner guarding? Like you can't put Miles on Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday yeah. falls in love a little bit with the step back three, but you, that's still not going to be a favorable matchup. You're certainly not putting him on Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown, so or Derek White at the point of attack. So it's just a lot harder for teams against the Celtic team to be able to find a place to quote unquote hide their center or be able to keep their center low if they want to. Yeah, that's the one thing they've done really well on offense is they do find the weak defender on the other team, and they even if it's a smaller defender too, like they always get. Derek White and Tatum in the action together and Tatum gets on to a smaller defender and he's been so good in the post this year that he can sort of abuse those type of defenders and Porzingis can do the same thing. We'll see if he plays in this game on Monday night since he's been dealing with this ankle situation. But you mentioned Buddy Heald and I believe it's he's now third and three point makes per 36 minutes. It feels weird because like I remember hearing all this stuff like could Buddy Heald be moved? He's on the final year of his contract. But now, like, he's shooting the ball well for them. We know that he's not afraid to shoot. I mean, the guy's bombing. But so you look at it, they could be competing for a top six seed for the majority of the season. At the very least, they look like they're going to be a lock to be in the play-in. So is would they have to be, like, blown over for a deal for Buddy Heald? Or do you think he finishes the season with the team? Unless, I mean, injury luck aside, if things stay the way they are, I can't imagine, especially considering what they're building with Halliburton right now, that they would move him, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, people talk about that because in the first game against Miami, Tyrese was really getting trapped. They needed somebody to make shots, and Buddy was firing up shots, and I believe he ended up finishing like 2 of 11 from 3 in that particular game. So it was the polar opposite of what happened when they were in Atlanta, and the same coverage occurred where Tyrese went scoreless in the fourth against Atlanta's full-court trapping, but Buddy went 5 of 5 in crunch time and kind of willed them into getting that in-season tournament win. But they've outscored opponents by seven points per 100 possessions when both of them are out on the floor. And that's in spite of what both of their defensive limitations can be. So I think some of that got blown up a little bit more than it probably needed to be because I don't think it ever became a case where Buddy went in and asked for a trade. I think they were pretty far apart in contract extension negotiations. But at this point, as long as they're competitive, it's exactly what you said. I think that they would have to get you know, first round pick compensation and maybe even something in addition to that for them to be willing to move off of Buddy because I do think he's more valuable to them than he likely would be to other teams because the partnership with Tyrese and he is just so strong, particularly in transition where they're a lot more effective when Buddy's out there because of what he can do sprinting and staying on balance and knowing how and where to fill lanes where he's ahead of Benedict Matherin in that particular department right now. And that's in part why I think they put him back into the starting lineup in addition to just trying to get Ben going a little bit more with the bench. So I foresee that he will be on the roster. Maybe he does, you know, go and test free agency over the summer and see 
what's available out there, but I think that he likes playing with Tyrese. I think he fits Rick Carlisle's system really well, and I think both sides would be happy to continue that partnership if they were able to come to terms. Yeah, so that brings me to the other thing with this team. Like, say they are in the top six and we're getting closer to the trading deadline. Do they try to add? Because obviously it feels like to me, and obviously you know better than me, the number one thing they need is sort of like a wing defender or yeah. a defensive personnel from any perspective. And you think about, like, the big guy that's probably going to be out there is OG Ananobi. But last year they were asking, it felt like they were asking the Grizzlies for like five or four. I think it was three first-round picks for OG Ananobi. But, that I mean, that would be like the perfect scenario, I would say, if they could get a guy like that. But... Oh, the problem there is, though, the contract is up. But is it like a lower type guy? Like if the Nets fall off, although they keep beating Orlando, like a Dorian Finney-Smith type, do you think they'll try to add a wing with some size at the deadline if they're still in it? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting to the point with the defense because of what I said earlier, that they've tried two polar opposite approaches and they're still in the bottom five, that I don't think that there's going to be a clear fix to this. I think that they're hoping that with the two versus two and some of the single covered scheme that you're getting more inflection points from guys like Benedict Mathern and others, and it's a slow build and there's internal development. But even then, I think that like I just wrote a piece this past day or two here where I pointed out that opponent after opponent, including Boston, Toronto, Orlando, Miami, all running the same slice screen play against the Pacers where it's just a back pick for a wing to either get a post up at the block or get a back cut. And typically those types of actions in the NBA don't directly lead to points. They're to gain an advantage going into a ball screen so that wing can get a step with the guard having to sag off to protect against that cut. They don't even have to get that far against the Pacers because it's just they don't have an adequate way to defend that within their current scheme when they aren't sending help from the weak side. So I'm to the point where I don't think it gets materially better unless they find somebody as a bridge point to help them at those two forward spots. And like what you said with OG Ananobi, I know that's something that they sniffed around on. It's incredibly risky for them to look at Pascal or OG when they're in the final year of their contract because it would be absolutely disastrous if they traded assets for them and then they walked in the summer. But I think that OG would be the perfect bridge between Tyrese and Miles. Offensively, I think he would fit really well into what they do in Rick Carlisle's scheme and just, I think he's the most positionalist defender in the NBA. So having somebody that they can move around that has more length is, is has to be at the top of their priority list. Yeah, the two guys that scare me from a Celtics perspective defensively against Tatum are OG and Jonathan Isaac. And he only plays like 20 minutes a game or so, but he did an outstanding job on Tatum. What was it, like a week ago Friday? I was like, man, Tatum, usually even on big defenders, he can find a way to get around him. He couldn't do that, and he couldn't get a shot off like against him because the guy is so long so Pacers getting OG that would be a huge move I, I don't know what Toronto's doing I know Masai won a championship of course a couple of years ago but how are Siakam and OG both in the final years of his contract it, 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 or their contracts it just doesn't really seem like good business so just getting into as I mentioned Tatum here who gets this matchup for the Pacers is it a lot of Bruce Brown or who do you think gets the most time on Tatum in this game I think that's what's it's going to be a departure from how they normally use Tyrese. So in most matchups, Tyrese gets assigned to low usage wings because he's better playing aerial ace and a roamer. There's not really a place to do that with him because there's no way they're putting him on Tatum or Jalen Brown or even Drew Holiday because Drew Holiday is a more physical matchup. So this is going to be a rare case where he's going to probably def be defending at the point of attack if he's available. Lloyd, the only other matchup they've done that in is against Kobe White and the Bulls because they didn't want him on Z Levine and DeRozan similarly. So my guess is it's most likely Bruce Brown on Tatum. And then if Obi's the starter, it's going to have to be Obi on Jalen. Um, Obi did a little bit better on Jimmy Butler last night than what was the case in the prior matchup. He stayed down on the pump fakes, but as it turned out, like Jimmy still had 33 and like nine free throw attempts. But there was 
a higher sampling of better possession. So I think it's going to have to be Bruce, but I mean, that even goes back to the playoff series that the Celtics played against Brooklyn, you know, because Bruce had to guard Tatum some in that matchup. And it's like, oh, he really just doesn't quite have enough size to be contesting Tatum's shot from three-point range or be doing much in the post in this particular setting. So I think they are going to have to be a little bit more aggressive with double teams. I will say that Tatum just made some absolutely hellacious shots in that prior matchup. Like I thought there were times where the Pacers made him take some tough shots and he made them anyways. And sometimes he settles for those. Cause like there was one cross match where Ben didn't know what he was doing in transition and miles ended up on Tatum and Tatum had like miles turned his back to him. Tatum pretty easily could have driven to the rim in that circumstance. And he's just like, ah, I'm going to keep a three, a three and take a sidestep, which he drained. Like it was a really impressive shot, but those are the instances where I, I think Tatum's incredible. And I think he's had a great start to the season. It's like, I just want him to drive the ball a little bit more. Like that's yeah. an open driving lane. The rim protectors on the perimeter, like just punch it to the rim. Yeah. But, it's believe me. It's aggravating because he, he's had a great season. He's it, rebounding the ball like crazy too, but the turnovers are up. And one of the other things is he does settle. Like he has been one of the most efficient drivers in the NBA, but the problem is he doesn't do it nearly enough. And his rim numbers are really good. Like all his numbers across the board when it comes to that stuff are up. It just, he doesn't drive the ball nearly enough. So do you think that they could like try to pull off some weird stuff in this game? Like because the defense is so porous and the Celtics have been so good in the other end that they try to junk it up. I mean, the Celtics lately, they have been coughing the ball up a lot. Like did they try some things like some trapping and... I don't even know, like, do, do they pull out some zone in this game, try to throw the Celtics off? That's something historically that has given the Celtics issues, not in the current version of the team, but in the past. Like, will they do, will Rick Carlisle try to do some weird things? That would be a big departure from what the beginning of the season has been. Last year, they used a lot of different types of coverages and they would put themselves into rotation more. They went to zone. This year, they have not played much zone at all. And they, like I said, they don't want a double team, but I don't think they're going to have much of a choice in this particular game, although they did get shot down from three in the prior matchup. But hopefully they can even some of that out if Tyrese is available. But they haven't gone to that a lot. They've tried to simplify the coverage to make it easier with a younger roster. Obviously, that's not really producing a lot of results in terms of their defensive rating. But of the two teams, if I was going to take a guess at who would try weirder things on defense and who will throw more different types of defenses out there, I would I would bet on the Celtics far more than I would the Pacers. I bet that they will try a lot of different things and, and show a lot of different looks at Tyrese Halliburton throughout that game. I mean, I think I even remember in the one game they played against the Sixers, weren't the weren't the Celtics in a box and one for a little bit against Joel Embiid? And Drew was like yeah. calling audibles within that box and one. Like I won't be surprised if we see some of that. Yeah, they they do a lot of weird things. That's one thing I do give Missoula credit for is he tries a lot of things. Now some people may not like it, like Billy Donovan when he's doing hack a drumming up by 30 points. But hey, they were trying to get into the in-season tournament. You got to embrace it. All right, so Caitlin, before I let you go, the line right now, FanDuel has it at five points. Assuming Halliburton plays, we'll see about Porzingis, but just assuming Halliburton's in there, do you think we get a good competitive game here on Monday night? I think that there's low-hanging fruit that the Pacers can correct from the prior matchup. I mean, I don't know how you could play much worse than you played in the prior game, and Tyrese does um make a lot of difference so i think that they can even some of it out in order to win i think the pacers would have to play a tremendous near perfect game i really think that because i think this is a tricky matchup for a lot of the reasons that we outlined but i think that they'll be ready and prepared and hopefully tyrese with having these extra days off will be good to go so i think it should be a good game all right that is caitlin cooper covers the pacers she is the creator of basketball she wrote you can follow her on twitter or X at C2 underscore Cooper. Caitlin, thank you so much for the time. Really enjoyed it and enjoy the game Monday night. Hey, thanks for having me on.
All right, great stuff there from Caitlin Cooper. Really enjoyed getting into this preview for the Celts and the Pacers coming up on Monday night. Cannot wait for this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. I should remind you, we're going to be potting after that game, so we'll have reaction to the in-season tournament, baby. Celtics and Pacers for the right to go to Las Vegas, so we'll get into that one, of course, after the game on Monday, but a lot of fun previewing that one. And I'll always have a soft spot for Aaron Neesmith. I've always been a big Aaron Neesmith guy. Maybe part of it is because I was take-committed. I remember talking about this when they were in the NBA Finals. Like, oh, maybe some Neesmith minutes. Maybe you can get some shooting out of Aaron Neesmith. If Pritchard's not going to hit shots, give Neesmith an opportunity. So maybe that's what it was, because I did really like the pick when the Celtics made it, but didn't turn out well for Neesmith here. Hopefully he can get things going, and it looks like they really like him in Indiana. All right, speaking of this in-season tournament game, Celtics and Pacers on Monday night. I cooked up a same-game parlay. This is for plus 196. So I like the Celts to win the game. I'll take them on the money line. It's a five-point line right now. So I like the Celts on the money line to win, just in case it's closer than we assume it's going to be. I'll take the money line. Then I'll take Derek White's alternate line of 10 points. Derek White, alternate line of four assists. He basically hits this every game. Drew Holiday, four rebounds. That's an alternate line. He basically hits that every game. And Tyrese Halliburton for 20 points on an alternate line. He's averaging 27 points per game on the season. So you can get that for plus 196 at FanDuel. Sees on the money line, Derek White 10 points, Derek White 4 assists, Drew Holiday 4 rebounds, and Tyrese Halliburton 20 points. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. I can't wait for this matchup against Tyrese Halliburton on Monday night on the road. Going to be awesome in-season tournament. Hopefully it's a lot better than the Celtics played, of course, in that Friday night game. I got into some of that before we brought on Caitlin, just Jason Tatum getting kicked out. Jalen's having this weird season. We talked about that a little bit with Pina. But hey, look, maybe they were just getting themselves psyched up for this Pacers matchup, which I can't wait for on Monday night. All right, we bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, we're excited about the Celtics coming up on Monday. We've established that, but man, that's one of the worst games that I can ever remember watching. Not because of the result, right? Like we've had heartbreaks as Patriots fans, right? I think about obviously the perfect season. You lose to the Giants. You lost another Super Bowl to the Giants. You lost a Super Bowl to the Eagles where the quarterback threw for 500 yards. Like we've had painful losses, right? Clearly. But this, in terms of just the watchability, and we're competing with a lot of bad games this year. The Washington game was bad. The Indy game was bad. They've had a, the Giants game Giants. was an eyesore. This may take the cake. Yeah, I, this, I wrote that down. This was, I think, the ugliest game I can ever remember, especially when you include the, the freaking weather, man. It's like 45 degrees and raining. Jesus Christ. Oh, 
Yeah, that was a bad one. That was a bad one. Okay, so let's look at our bets. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. Ugh. My parlay did not hit. So we're back to, we won last week. We lost this week. So I had the Dolphins. This is for plus 322. Dolphins alternate line minus six and a half. That covered easily. Then we had the Steelers to win on the money line. As we're talking right now, it's 24 to three. They're about to lose. Kenny Pickett, as I mentioned with James, he got hurt. They end up losing that game. The Steelers did to the Cardinals, but it's a good thing from the Patriots perspective, as we mentioned, gets them a game on the Cardinals in the loss column, right. which is always great. And then I had the Broncos as three and a half point dogs in Houston. I was feeling good about that for a while. Russell Wilson had a chance late in that game right. to win it. He ends up throwing an interception. So Houston wins and huge win for the Texans as they sort of get closer to playoff position. And the touchdown parlay just went to shit because Ramondre Stevenson got hurt early, which is just unfortunate i can't imagine now they said after the game that x-rays are negative that's a good thing that it's not a break but some sort of an ankle sprain where i can't envision him playing thursday quite frankly if it's me i'd put him on ice for the rest of the season i mean he's a running back why waste mileage on a guy where there's these games don't mean anything anymore you're going to be bringing in a quarterback next year a young quarterback i would just put him on ice for the rest of the season let him heal up He's proven that he's the same guy from last year over the past four weeks or so. So I just put him on ice for the rest of the season. But hey, it's not my call. It's Bill's call. He'll probably be trying to win the final game of the season against the Jets. Yeah, maybe that one. But yeah, that was that was brutal, man. I mean, on t- multiple levels, I almost feel bad talking about the injury from a betting point of view. But it just totally screwed over everything. I had him over 60 yards. He had 40 yards like halfway through the first quarter. That looked like it was going to hit before halftime, you know. Yeah. So that disappeared. I was and thinking not about to- you. Oh my god! I, I okay. I literally texted. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gonna hit immediately. The next play, he goes down and fumbles the ball and gets hurt. I was like, that was the ultimate jinx. But um, that hurt, and then also it hurt because it completely killed the Patriots' offense. So <laughs> I actually got them at plus five and a half with the, and then I had that with the under of seventeen. <laughs> Obviously, they lost by six, but I almost hit that, but I did not. I lost, and that was a that was a bad bad beat on multiple levels. Yeah, it's rough. He he probably would have gone over 100, quite frankly. Like, they he couldn't stop great. him. He was running hard. It's like the Ramondre game. It's like, let's just feed Ramondre. So that was your big... And you had... Oh, you had the... Oh, you got a push on the yeah on the game. You had the yeah, I, had, I, did, I took it even. Yeah, plus six, but push. It was a tough day. Yeah, the Patriots to cover the six. Yeah, I, I said on the pod on Thursday, I was staying away from that one. I wasn't confident that the Patriots would or would not cover the number. I thought the Chargers would win the game, but, right. man, it felt like no... T- well, both teams were allergic to the end zone. I, watching a football game and not having a touchdown is just something. <laughs> insane, Unreal, man. man. I was thinking, I'm like, the Patriots might actually win this game. Can you imagine if the Patriots had won that 7-6? to six? I think you tweeted it out. I think Staley would have been fired before the press conference. Oh, yeah. They would have left him there. <laughs> that guy, man. Yeah. They would have left him there. He's been getting into it with reporters. Oh, one random thing that I wanted to mention, yeah. and I know that I do this a lot lately. That was a bizarre broadcast. They went down to the sideline reporter yeah. to say that it was colder now than it was at the beginning of the game. Thanks. <laughs> it's like, well, the sun's I setting. Mean, yeah. That's like, that's the sideline report. And then we get the guy, the analyst, Adam Archuleta, I believe right, his name yeah. is. He said that they drafted Tyquan Thornton to be a speed guy. Yeah, no fucking shit. <laughs> The guy yeah. ran a 4-2-4 or whatever it was. 4-2 is the fastest receiver at the combine. 
No, we thought they drafted him to be a possession receiver, Adam. Like, thanks for clarifying <laughs> that with us. Like, I, I don't know. And then they had um, this weird thing at the end of the half where they're arguing, him and Spiroditas, where Archuleta said it's either going to be a draw or something else, right? And they actually did run a draw. And Spiroditas is like, oh, you're counting an RPO as a draw? It wasn't an RPO. It was just a draw. And he's like, that was a draw. So it's just like weird. He's like, okay, I guess we'll have to go to the film on that one. It's like, no, man, you're wrong. It was actually just a draw. So I, I, and look, maybe this is just something we're not used to. Is like we Game used like, for decades, it was Nance and whoever Nance's right. partner was, whether it be, or it was, the Sunday night game with Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth. So it almost felt like those and Joe Buck and Aikman whenever it was on Fox. Like the right. Patriots always had either yeah. the number one or the number two broadcast team. So we're familiar with all these guys. And now we're getting like all these random teams because the Patriots aren't good anymore. So it's just like you got to adjust to it, right? I almost felt like those, like Nance used to be like what Gorman was for the Celtics, right? Or like yeah, normal what voice. Dave O'Brien was for the Red yeah. Sox, right? Or Jack Edwards for the Bruins because I felt like 12 games a year, Jim Nance is calling the Patriots game. Yeah, at the very least, you get Ian Eagle or something, who I like too. But I'm going to give out a little uh, empathy on my point of view because that was a tough game to call. Like, holy shit. Yeah. The amount of time you have to fill up with that is insane. Yeah, I'm not trying to take shots at those guys. I hear you. I just felt like it's weird. And, like, I think this is part of being in sort of the bubble of like having the same guys over and over. Like I'm sure Chiefs fans feel the same way now. It's like every game they have like Jim Nance or it's Sunday night. We had it good. Yeah, we did. We certainly did. All right, Jamie. Well, we'll be back on Monday night. We're going to break down the in-season tournament. Minus five right right now. You made a great point, though, about if the if they win on Monday, they'll play at least to compete with the Patriots on Thursday. So it's a little added incentive I got to think about. So. On Thursday night, it's going to be a 5 p.m. game. Yeah, It appears that would be the Eastern Conference. And then the second game is at 9 p.m. Of course, that's going to be the Western Conference. ESPN gets one and TNT gets the second one. So it's actually going to be sort of interesting that the the game's going to be that early. So we'll have the high of the Celtics, Hmm. right? Now, if they lose, we'll be mad, right? Because that means they'll probably... I don't know. The Knicks may actually beat the Bucs. One game? Yeah, and the Knicks are tough, man. They play good defense, and the Bucs don't play good defense. Now, obviously, the Bucs have arguably the two best players in the game in Lillard and Giannis, obviously the best player in Giannis. You could argue Brunson over Lillard right now, not like the career. Like, Brunson's having an outstanding season. But if they lose that game, we'll be upset. Hopefully, it's not. A, well, I mean, we don't want it to be. What if the worst scenario for Thursday night, now that I think about it, Celtics <laughs> lose, Patriots win. That's the worst case scenario. <laughs> like, we want a Celtics win. Now, the Celtics still have to win on Monday. Right. But we want a Celtics win and a Patriots <laughs> loss, not a Patriots win and a Celtics loss. Can Correct. you imagine? Correct. No, this is interesting, though. This really is uncharted territory, this this knockout basketball. Never, never seen this before. It'll be interesting. All right, Jamie. Great stuff, man. Thank you, Brian. All right, if you want to leave us a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172. Email us at offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.